This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 281 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am very excited to bring to you Maggie Bradford. Now, the backstory for this particular episode is I had an event happen with my son and his school which very sadly and tragically he had to go through, but it really blew the doors open on a very, very serious problem we have in the schools with mental health. And I was trying to find someone who would be pertinent and well-versed in this to reach out to. So I reached out to Dr. Tanya Glenn, who is one of the leaders in mental health in the first responder community, and Maggie is one of her peers in her practice who spent a lot of time working with children. So I really wanted to pick her brains on mental health in children. We have many people on the show who went through trauma when they were younger, and yet I haven't really explored it primarily on the childhood side. And then look for solutions for better ways of doing it within our schools and just mental health in general. So a great conversation. I'm sure all the parents out there are going to learn a lot from this. Before we get to that episode, like I always say, please just take a moment, go to the podcast app that you are listening to this on, subscribe to the show so you know when the new episodes come out, leave feedback. I love reading the feedback you guys uh, write to me. And then most importantly, rate the show. The five-star ratings truly do push us up the ladder, as it were, and make us more visible for people looking for episodes just like this and then take social media email word of mouth and share it that way as well so with that being said i introduce to you maggie bradford enjoy So Maggie, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really honored and humbled to, to be here talking to you. Brilliant. Well, I wanted to address this subject. And, uh, you know, when I was racking my brains, Tanya was definitely one of the people I thought she would be a great person to ask who she recommended. Um, so, you know, I'm so glad that she was able to connect us. Me too. Me too. Absolutely. Right. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Austin, Texas. I'm actually in uh, Tanya's office. I'm a therapist, so I work for her, and I'm, I'm at work today. Fantastic. Now, starting at the very beginning, where were you born, and what was your family unit like? Sure. So I was born on um, the south side of Chicago, Chicagoland suburbs. Um, I'm the oldest of three children, and we lived in Chicago in, in that area until I was about 18 months old. And then we moved to Kansas. My dad just retired from the grain industry. So that means that we moved. Um, we followed the business around, you know. Um, so we lived all over Kansas and then moved back to Illinois when I was about 15 or 16. And then I moved to Austin about three years ago, three and a half years ago. 
All right. Well, firstly, speaking of Austin, that I have uh, my brother-in-law lives there. My my in-laws live in San Antonio, but so many great people in the like the tactical space. Um, you know, the the weapons training and martial arts, and and obviously Tanya's there seem to be in that town. So so what are you? What has been your experience of the last three years of living there? I absolutely love it. If you had asked me um, like 10 years ago, even if I thought I would end up in Texas or Austin, I, I really, it wasn't even on my radar. Um, to this day, the, the good friend that I moved down here with, he and I will talk about it constantly and we still really can't pinpoint exactly what it was that, that pulled us here. Um, but it's, there's something about this place that is just so different and just, I don't know. It's, it's got a really good vibe, really good energy. And I think it draws some pretty awesome people here. Yeah. And it seems to be that, that mix between, you know, the, the, the Texan, the stereotypical Texan, but then that, that very eclectic, almost hippie feel to it. So such an interesting blend of the two. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I definitely uh, relate to the hippie vibes <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, so I, I have a good chunk of family members who probably would sway that way. Um, the joke that I always give, you know, when I introduce myself is I was raised by an army ranger and a hippie. Um, so that means I'm a therapist for first responders. Perfect. Uh, that was the path that that upbringing led to. <laughs> well, brilliant. So, so talking about that, so your dad, I'm assuming ended up in the grain industry. So he was a, a ranger before that? Correct. Yes. And how long was he in for? Uh, he was in for about four years. Okay. So now being a practitioner, did did he ever discuss with you or does he like to this day now any of the the kind of mental uh toll of his service or or did he deal with it pretty well? Um I I think he dealt with it pretty well. You know, I I'm hearing more stories um as as I maybe am more of an adult or as I ventured into this field, you know, he's definitely talking about it more than I remember when I was a child. Um but you know, we knew little stories here or there. But did not have a, a really good idea, you know, of the daily life or everything that he went through. Right, and then and then how how did he uh, find the grain industry after that? His dad was in the grain industry his whole life, so my dad has it's just always been his life. So he uh, was very well known and very well respected, both him and his dad in the field. Right, and then what did your mom do? My mom was um, a stay-at-home mom with us for quite a number of years, and then she started running a daycare out of our home, and then she started working with uh, special needs children in the school system. Um, so she's always, always, always been around kiddos. Brilliant. Well, that's going to factor in as well, because I'm, I'm, a lot of oh, the, yeah. the mental health challenges I hear you know, from parents with kids with autism, Down syndrome, um, so I'd definitely love to explore that as we get into the conversation. Um, definitely. Now, I also another thing I always ask guests: When you were at school, were you an athlete? Were you in band? What was your your passion back then? Um, so I definitely tried to play sports, but I'm going to be perfectly honest: I am an indoor cat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I played when I played soccer. I figured out I'm like I'm going to be the keeper because that's the one that doesn't run. <laughs> um, so I'm going to stay over there. I did. I loved doing competitive swimming. Um, and then I was in marching band for a little while and was in the band for several years, played the trumpet. Um, yeah, I definitely leaned more toward like the academic stuff. I was not a super well, uh, well-known athlete in my day. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, then what about career aspirations? When you were in high school, what were you intending to do when you graduated? I was kind of all over the place. I think I always knew that I was going to go into the psychology field, but for a little while, I, I even dabbled with the idea of being a chiropractor. Really couldn't tell you where that came from either. Um, but I think I always, I was always just drawn to the field of psychology and I wasn't always sure exactly what I was going to do with it, but I knew that's where I was going to end up. Right. So when you first trained for that, did you specifically want to work with children, adults? What was your kind of niche that you were aiming for? The, so the kids thing just kind of happened on its own. So initially I wanted to do criminal psychology work. Um, I think I watched uh, Silence of the Lambs at way too young of an age and very much wanted to be Jodie Foster when I grew up. And so I really was interested in the criminal aspect of it, which led to me getting um, a minor in my undergrad in criminal justice. So I really thought I wanted to do the criminal psychology route. And then in my 
master's program, when we started counseling, I started working with a kiddo who had been sexually abused and molested. And I really didn't want to do it, but I kept seeing her, her like, so we had like call sheets kind of for people who called into this clinic to get therapy. And it was a student clinic. We were, we were all interns. We were all learning. And I just kept saying like, someone please take this kid. Someone please take this baby and get her some help. And no one would. So eventually I did. And then I was hooked from that moment. Uh, there was really no going back from then. Yeah. Now with that particular case, obviously not violating privacy, but was uh, was she able to to find her way to a better place and, and deal with that trauma? I, I think so. We definitely made some progress. Um, unfortunately, just due to the nature of how things go, I never really got any closure to to know how it went. We did not get to like really finish therapy how I wanted to. Um, just with the nature of life and things happen and things pop up. But we we did get some really good work done and in a very short period of time. And that's when I, I realized how much I loved working with kids because you got you did get to see such immediate results and immediate progress. And it was just so fulfilling and so rewarding. And it was exhausting work and it was so draining and took a lot of love and emotion and everything I had. But when I finished a session with her, I felt better than than ever. Yeah, now it's interesting you said about closure because someone recently, uh, Dr. Peter Antevia had on the show, who's uh, an ER physician, um, a pediatric physician, and and he said something that I'd never really thought about, which was needing closure on each of our calls. And and from the outside looking in, I'm sure you've heard this from responders that you've spoken to, you know, you, you think that something happens, someone's in a car crash, and you take them to the hospital, then, you know, they they come to the station and they hug you and you're like, okay, awesome. And the reality is you run 15, 20 calls like that. Some are obviously way more emergent than others. And many, many times after you've done your pass on at the ER, you go back in service and you may never hear again. And that lack of closure on some of these calls, I I didn't realize until you kind of brought it up how mentally taxing that actually is. And and do you have the same thing as as a therapist or a counselor where you know, you only get so many sessions and you don't know the ending to that story, as it were? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time, Um, depending on like what kind of work you do. So, you know, we're set up where we're not limited on on session numbers here. So so we're not limited with that, which is such a a beautiful and wonderful thing. Um, But yeah, you know, some life happens. Sometimes your your clients uh, do better and they're, they're ready to be done. And or sometimes they just kind of fall off the face of the earth. It happens. So no, we we do not always get closure at all. Um, and it can be a little difficult sometimes. You know, you've been really in the trenches with these people. You know, holding their hands and, and walking behind them as they go go on this journey. And you don't get to know the ending of the story all the time. And and that can be really hard. Well, then starting with the the special needs community, I'd love to explore that first. So I had some amazing people on the show, um, you know, who have special needs kids or, um, you know, some of them even, uh, you know, do classes now for first responders, teaching them how we should interact with these special needs kids. Um, and one of them, uh, talked about the fact that they're a lot more vulnerable than the average child too, because maybe they may not be able to communicate the same way. So with, you know, that aside, with, with your, um, experience when you first came into childhood trauma what were some of the things you saw as a clinician um or or a counselor with that community specifically on the mental health side sure um so depending on like what disorder you're looking at or what you're kind of working with so if you're going with like children with autism or children with down syndrome as a clinician my first fear or worry or concern is do they know how to advocate for their needs do they know how to make their needs known Um, How verbal are they? And do they know, you know, if they're being violated in some way? Do they know that a social exchange or a social interaction is wrong that they can go and tell an adult? Um, Kids who've experienced trauma, kind of the same thing. Like, do, do they know that this is inappropriate or this is wrong or this isn't supposed to happen? And do they have the words to then go tell someone and try and get help? Right. So then with with the, the diverse group of boys and girls that you've had, were you seeing, um, was it alarming as to the amount that you were seeing or, or, you know, was it proportionate to what a non-special 
needs group of children would be? Sure. I, I think my, my sample size or my population I worked with was kind of all over the place. It was um, actually really overwhelming and hard to tell. Um, so when I started working with kids, all the kids I was counseling, so just doing like the mental health therapy with, um, those children all primarily had been sexually abused or molested in some kind of way. Um, additionally, I was doing ABA therapy for another job, and that therapy is specifically working with children on the autism spectrum. So those children are, you know, as I said, all over the spectrum. And then I picked up a third job because I was crazy. And I was a preschool teacher um, working like in a daycare because I'm like, I just need to see kids that are thriving and doing well and they're having good days. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just kind of across the board, like every kid has their own unique skill set and has their own unique way that they can communicate. And just being being able to make sure that they can do that as a parent, as a teacher is so vital. Yeah. Now, we're speaking of the schools then. So. Um, I had an incident with my little boy. He's been going through some, you know, some, some depression, some very low self-esteem. Um, and he, we had an incident where basically, you know, he was, the school completely overreacted in my opinion, deviated completely from pretty clear written protocols. Uh, I did, you know, a series of videos on that, but, um, it really kind of cracked open this egg on mental health in schools. And again, this isn't picking on individuals. I think this is a systemic thing. So I want to make that clear. Um, but what, what are some of the things that you see that our school system, obviously you're, you know, you're in your echo chamber now in Austin, um, that the schools are doing well? And then what are some of the things that you think we can improve on with the mental health side of our children in the schools? Sure. Um, so yeah, again, I'd like to definitely like agree with you, like not trying to like bash any, any one or any profession or anything like that. Um, but you know, I was privileged enough to have my supervisor while I was getting full licensure be an incredibly amazing school, uh, a school counselor. And she, she was counselor of the year last year for her district. You know, she's amazing. So as far as good things go, I see people like her. And I was privileged enough to have a little peek into her world and see that there's lots of really great school counselors out there um, who love their kids, who are working so hard for them and they're being fierce, amazing advocates for them. But the problem is there's not enough of them. There's there's just not enough. And these school counselors are expected to, you know, do mental health counseling with these kids. They're expected to help them pick out classes and administer, you know, like the big statewide tests and all that stuff. So like there, there's a lot on their plates and then they're, they have so many kids on, on their caseload. So, so there's that component. And I also see fear. I see people are afraid who knows what's going to happen in any school on any given day. Now, you know, we're talking about like mass shootings happening in schools and that's a common thing that's coming up in the news all the time. Um, so everyone's afraid there's cameras everywhere and everyone's afraid of being filmed and their actions being judged or misjudged or, you know, so people are afraid and probably overreacting then. Yeah. And then that's what it seems with this system. So what, what I've found at this point is this kind of, I forget which, which, uh, company the commercial was for, but there was a whole thing about blame storming, you know, it was like a, a boardroom and it was, it was blame storming where everyone was just pointing at each other. And that's what I've experienced. Like, oh, no, it's the sheriff's department's fault. Oh, no, it's the school's fault. But no one's actually taken ownership to actually fix this issue. So I'm seeing the same thing. I know there was in Florida, there was some sort of reform to policy post Parkland when we had the shootings in South Florida. Um, but what I'm seeing as a very layman parent, you know, who's very involved in the school and, you know, volunteered there for a long time um, is the pendulum swinging all the way to the other side, way, way past where it should be. You've got these these children who, and, I, and I've spoken about this on a couple of podcasts already, but you and I, when we were little, the, I'm assuming you know, there's a bit, bit of an age gap between the two of us, but the fire alarm was basically what we drilled at school. So the the, right. the, 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 the the bell went off and like, oh, thank goodness, you know, I hate that class. I get to go outside and see the sun <laughs> for a few minutes. You know, yeah. it wasn't traumatizing at all. No, it was fun. These poor kids now, the bell goes off, the code three is, you know, sounded, which, you know, is, is, is a scary thing in itself. 
And then they have to now turn off all the lights, hide under the desks. If they think high school level, they're piling desks in front of the door. And you have to sit there and imagine that someone is walking down the hall with a weapon looking specifically for you so they can murder you. You know what I mean? Now, what to add that to the caveat to that is I actually got to see the inside one day purely by chance. I dropped my kid off after uh, his annual medical appointment and I just happened to be walking through when they called a code red. So they closed the door behind me and said, you have to stay here. You come hide in this office. And so I got to see firsthand not only how scary it was for the kids. And they were lucky because my son actually got that one. He got to stand next to his dad the whole time. So he he wasn't as scared. But the teachers had no idea what was going on. The only person knew that was you know that had communication with the outside was the principal. Um, and they're just completely vulnerable. And so when you see that, yes, we need to make our schools more secure, but we're creating an incredibly scared, anxious group of little boys and girls because of training for this. And we have to train. But I think if we're going to put officers in schools and, you know, and do these drills, there's, there's a, there's a reactive side to that or, you know, the other side of that where we need to improve mental health you know partly obviously for screening and making sure that one of the kids isn't going to be a violent one but also for for these kids because you're going to have more you know emotional episodes because it's freaking terrifying absolutely like can you imagine that like being a kid and and like you just said like they don't know it's a drill they don't know like today could be the day you know um so i mean absolutely yeah we need to make our schools safer for our kids but we also need to make sure that we are bolstered and we're prepared to deal with the mental health effects that they're going to have from constantly going into that fight or flight state every time a a code red drill happens yeah now another thing that i got from the blame storming the two groups well we don't have mental health counseling we're not trained and, and, you know, my thing is, no, you're damn right you're not. And you made a terrible decision here, and I'll stand by that. But so in an ideal world, in, in, in your profession, what kind of level of care should be in these schools to be able to either, you know, send someone to a holding facility that absolutely needs to be there or de-escalate the knee jerk of probably what I'm seeing, you know, 80% of the kids that end up there? Um, wow. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not the, the organizational psychology type. So, you know, I, I wish we had access to a psychiatrist or something for the school district or something that could maybe come and do an evaluation. So it doesn't fall on the shoulders of the SRO to make that determination of like, do we need to send this, this child off? Cause from my understanding, the, the, the Baker act must be, kind of called by a a police officer, a doctor, someone like that, correct? Okay. So, you know, should if we're doing that, if we're actually making that a thing that we're doing in schools, shouldn't we have a doctor available that we can talk to so it doesn't fall on the shoulders of of the police officer that's there? Um, I think that would be much better. You know, I, I think we really just need to slow down a little bit too and take some time and talk to these kids and find out what's going on. You know, how many of these children who've been Baker acted could have been um, avoided with a 10, 15, 20 minute conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like on many of these cases, the parents are left out of the whole thing. You know, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So bring the parents in, let them, you know, be part of that because the escalation is probably going to be, you know, the upset little boy, maybe just being with his mother and hugging her will bring him down. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I, I force myself to play devil's advocate. So on the other hand of that side, you know, I can definitely see if you have a truly disturbed child who absolutely needs to have immediate medical psychiatric intervention, um, you know, would the parents be a, a potential hindrance of that? But also, I mean, where do we draw these boundaries and where do we draw these lines and where do we stop having conversations and just making decisions like that? Yeah. Well, another thing that I've got, you know, through through these conversations with these two entities is ultimately the 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 protocol behind it needs to be changed but they're still 
enacting it anyway. You know what I mean? So they're saying, yeah, we do have a problem, but I've, you know, I've still got to do it this way. So, you know, my thing is, I think this seems it's definitely a statewide thing because there are articles all over the place that I didn't have any idea until I, you know, again, cracked this open and, and people started sending me all these news reports and, and, uh, you know, videos and things. But, um, you know, it's, I think it's an awareness thing. I think all parents have to advocate for their kids and really, you know, question why, why are we having X amount of, of, uh, Baker Axe or, you know, whatever it is. Why are we having X amount of kids even in these emotional states? And, and what can we do better to prevent it rather than just offloading them to a facility that's then being swamped and not able to do the job it's supposed to do? Absolutely. Yes. Right. So then switching from that, cause I don't want to, I don't want to flog a dead horse either. Um, <laughs> so with the, um, the the child psychology side one thing i hear um so many good things about i know dr glenn does it um and uh you know some other people that i've spoken to do it as well is emdr now where i'm about to to have my son going to a, a local place here from a recommendation of someone I, ver- I trust very much apparently they do emdr on children there so what is what is your uh experience with emdr on kids yeah. Um, so I'm, I am EMDR trained and, um, I have not had a significant opportunity to do it. I, I guess, thank goodness on a large number of children. Um, but it's, it's absolutely amazing. And, you know, it's, it's very similar, you know, it's exactly the same as how, you know, uh, Tanya described it to you when she was on your show, you know, you're taking that unprocessed trauma that's, that's trapped in your prefrontal cortex and moving it back to where it's supposed to be stored in long-term memory. So for kids, it's no different. But for kids, we we do the methodology just slightly different. So instead of having them, you know, talk about what they noticed or what they experienced and what they felt, often we'll have them draw it for us, you know, little literal crayons and paper. And I've seen that done and I've used that technique before. And it's it's mind blowing. Like it, it moved me to, to near tears just watching it, actually just seeing it on paper and you can see them processing that trauma and it's it's amazing. I think it's it's highly effective for children, you know, obviously as well. And I'm really really happy that your your kiddos getting that that help that's going to be really good. Yeah, well I'll definitely report on it if, you know, <clears throat> if he has success. Absolutely. Now, how would you describe it to a child? Because, you know, I told my little boy, hey, there's this thing, it's helped my friends, you know, I mean, it's helped some people that have been through incredible trauma. Um, how do you describe what you're about to do to a child? Yeah. So making sure that you're using, you know, obviously like age appropriate language for, you know, however old your, your kiddo is and just that, you know, talking about like, you know, I know we've been talking about and processing that, that really bad thing that happened and, you know, you've named it, you've labeled whatever you're going to refer to the event as. And I, I want to help that event go to the back of your brain and just be a normal memory. Um, like, do you remember last week when you went to the park or you went to the movies? Do you remember how that memory looks? It looks kind of fuzzy and it, you can kind of see it, but it's not super strong. And, and how strong is this big bad, you know, this event? I want to make that event look like that. And so then, you know, we just we walk them through it. We're like, OK, we're going to just so with uh, with kiddos, you have a couple different well, with everyone. You have a couple different choices on how you do the bilateral stimulation. Um, so you can do the eye movements, which, you know, is moving the eyes back and forth with kids. It's usually easier to have them like follow a hand puppet or something. Um, or you can have, uh, we call them tappers. They're little vibrating paddles for kiddos. We call them buzzies and they just hold them in their hands and they alternate each hand buzzing. So kind of explain what that's going to do. And then I have them just, you know, draw like, okay, when you think about that, that big event, can you draw what it looks like and draw what it feels like? Like, what do you see there? And then just have them keep drawing and keep processing and keep going. And I've heard several people say they literally did a single session and walked out feeling like, you know, completely different. What are, what, what's the sequence of sessions that you're seeing success with kids? So every kid's going to be different and it's, it's kind of a bag of cats because you know, on one hand, kids hold information and they hold events so differently than adults do. I often find that kids are more accepting of things, just anything, than adults are. Um, you can just explain something to them and they're like, okay, no big deal, got it. 
Whereas adults will be like, okay, I have five follow-up questions and <laughs> I need to have all these questions answered before we can move on. So, you know, you might want to s- start small and just kind of do one event at a time or their brains are just going to dump all of it and process all of it and be good to go. So, it's, you know, every every kid is going to be different based on the trauma that you're processes, processing and, and working on. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, taking a different perspective now, um, I was talking to one of my guests, Pat Kenny, just now, and, and his, his little boy, again, like I said, was clinically depressed and, and sadly for lack of a better word, made it to 20. You know what I mean? He was, he was suffering and every day was, was a struggle. Um, but again, with, with my son and, and, and hearing now stories of some of my friends and people reaching out, you, again, we're peeking into the child world. Now we know that in the veteran community, we, we kind of acknowledge now there's a mental health challenge, certainly in first responders as well. What is your view of, depression, anxiety, and even suicide from, from your perspective, as far as, as the, the magnitude of it amongst our kids in this country? Sure. Um, so, you know, depression is, is incredibly common with, with children more so than we think, you know, they say one in 10 kiddos have, they suffer from a mental condition of some kind. Um, ADHD and, and disruptive behaviors, depression, that's, that's mostly up there. Um, was it like, three percent of kids something like that has a a depressive disorder so you know it is it is prevalent and it it is based entirely on you know their history what does their family life look like what does the genetics look like so there's so many factors going into it and i think we're doing a much better job these days of actually pointing it out and screening for it finding it and treating it than we have been in the past now, do we do it? There's no like automatic screen, screening in the schools, though. Is there unless there's an issue? As far as I know, I don't believe there's an automatic screening. Yeah. yeah. Is that something you think that might be a good idea at a certain developmental age just to have a kind of generic screen as if you would uh, a physical for school? You know, I don't I don't think it would hurt to to kind of include that, you know, with like their annual physical, you know, that they go see their doctor or, you know, like if every kid were to get some kind of FaceTime with a, a school counselor, you know, just to, just to have like someone have eyes on them and check in, you know, cause kids don't always know when, when they're struggling or when what they're feeling is not normal. Yeah. Now with the, the depression, um, what are some of the, we talked about EMDR, what are some of the other um, methodologies that you've seen work well with, you know, some mental health challenges in some of these children? Sure. Um, so cognitive behavioral therapy is um, probably one of the most commonly used ones. So that's where we take, you know, distorted thoughts and thinking patterns and try and just make them a little healthier. So changing the way you think, changing your behavior, changing the overall results. Uh, additionally, for kids, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of play therapy, um, art therapy, sand tray therapy. Kids communicate so much more effectively and and so beautifully with their creativity and just by by creating stuff, by making stuff through play. So I'm a huge advocate for those those uh, methods of therapy. Yeah, there's a an organization called Surface Not Street Children in South Africa, and I had um, uh, Tom, the founder of that, and one of the most amazing things they would do is the kids would go out. They would surf and these were, you know, homeless kids from their parents being killed or, you know, whatever the, the backstory was. And they would surf and then they would, well, after they were done with their surf session, they're sitting there on the beach with the ra- waves crashing in, you know, and the sunshine. Then they would do the therapy side and they had counselors there. And that seemed like such a great combination of not only the outside, but getting that phys- physical exertion first, getting those endorphins and then getting the kids to open up. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds amazing. Amazing work. Brilliant. Well, then, so we can transition. Then. So do you work with first responders now with, with adults? I do. Okay. I do, yeah. so, so let's take that journey. So you've got the childhood trauma side. And that's something that I, again, had no idea till I started interviewing, you know, some of these amazing people and realizing the prevalence of childhood trauma in some of these amazing, you know, soldiers, firefighters, police officers. Um, what are you seeing now, having truly seen children firsthand and then first responders? 
the correlation between childhood trauma and then issues as a first responder or tactical athlete? Sure. Um, you know, I see, I see a lot of people who have had trauma and struggles as children, and then they go on to be first responders. And Tanya wrote a really beautiful article about this a little while back, um, about just seeing so many people who've been abused as a child or has have gone through trauma, and then they turn it around and they pay it forward and they do something amazing with their lives, like join the military, become a first responder of some sort, because they want to help other people. And they want to see people not struggle and suffer the way that they had. And I think there's two types of people in this world. There's the people that will continue to perpetuate the cycle and continue the suffering and pass that on to their children. And then there's people who have self-actualization and want to do better in the world. And I, I just think it's amazing. And I love, love, love seeing these people just overcome this trauma and continue to be helpers and givers and just want the world to be left better than they found it. Yeah. Now, one thing that I've, I think I spoke to Tanya about this as well, because of that, because we, our profession attracts some, some people that have been hurt. Um, you, you know, you, you have this, this baggage that's coming through the door. And I mean, baggage in a, in, a, in a positive way, not in a negative way, but you have the life experiences. Some are positive, some are negative. Um, and we have this screening process where we have to do a polygraph and we do psych evals and sit with, you know, with a person, but they're not, it's not a counseling session. They're trying to evaluate if we're, you know, homicidal or whatever other red flags they're looking for. And to me, and this is just something I've thought about recently, that same budget would probably pay for five counseling sessions to any, to the, the group that you truly want to hire. So now you have this relationship with a counselor that begins on day one of your career, but you also have an opportunity then to offload some of the trauma. So maybe you've done EMDR because, you know, your, your son committed suicide or whatever it was that you're bringing into it. Now you have an opportunity to address that, offload it and have a relationship with a counselor. What's your, what's your perspective on that kind of idea versus the traditional polygraph psyche valve? Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely moving in a positive direction, at least like the addition of, of that, you know, that's, that's the dream, right? Is that we all move towards a place of more understanding and acceptance of the mental health field and what our first responders deal with on a daily basis and, and that it's okay to, to get help and it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. So seeing as that isn't in place, what are some of the issues that you're seeing? with that unaddressed trauma as you start then adding sleep deprivation shift work and the things that we see on top of an already traumatic childhood? Sure. So, you know, you're going to, well, what do we do when we have some kind of issue that we don't really want to deal with? We stuff it, right? We just stuff it down, stuff it down, stuff it down. People are really good at repressing stuff taking those those gremlins and those demons and putting them in boxes and putting those boxes in a deep dark closet in your mind but you know what happens you know those those demons and those gremlins you know someone gets them wet and feeds them after midnight they find a blow a bofex and a pile of cocaine and just go crazy right they bust out of the boxes and they wreak havoc and then you add the the work schedule the sleep deprivation not working out not eating right and hydrating and and then we have a mess and then we have a problem. And if we could start kind of at the beginning and, and help mitigate some of that from the start, we can prevent all that. Yeah. Now, again, so, so a different perspective. Again, I've had several people on here that didn't even realize that some of them even, even hadn't even remembered some childhood trauma, discovered it through therapy. Um, what are you seeing from the other end now when you get these men and women coming in your office um, and then you're able to walk them down trauma pre-career um, as far as the successes once you address those traumas as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of like an eye-opening experience. You know, we'll kind of, you know, we'll ask questions and poke around, you know, when's, when's the last, the first time you remember feeling something like that? And maybe we uncover something that they hadn't remembered and it's not that big and that dramatic as, as I just described. Sometimes it's like, wow, I never really thought about it that way. I guess I guess I did go through that. And then we can we can deal with it and they have a different perspective. And then they're able to to move past it and, and do well. Yeah. Brilliant. So then from the adult side, you talked about the you know, the certain therapies being good for kids. From your perspective, what have you seen some of the best ones for the adults that you get? 
Uh, uh, the adults for sure, uh, EMDR, cognitive behavioral therapy. We also do progressive desensitization, which is, you know, getting back out there and riding the horse that bucked you, you know? Um, so I think those are all really great things. And, you know, and then I also take a really eclectic approach too, which is a total cop-out answer, <laughs> but whatever the, whatever I feel the client needs, whatever I feel they benefit from, we'll go down that path, you know? Brilliant, Maggie. Well, thank you so much. It's been great getting a perspective from you know someone who's dealt with uh, let's say dealt. That sounds a terrible word. Who's worked with uh, with children in, in the therapy side, and then obviously with first responders as well. Um, so I want to transition to some closing questions. The first one I love to ask people: Is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be what we've talked about today, or something completely different. You know, so for kids, I, I always am very hesitant to recommend anything to do like with kids because there's so many different like paths and, and choices in regards to parenting and their style. Um, but just kind of get out there and talk, maybe talk to a therapist, talk to, you know, a, a teacher. So that's my kind of annoying cop out answer for, for children. Um, I'm a huge fan of the body keeps the score uh, by Bessel van der Kolk uh, for trauma and adults, especially. Um, I really also like Man's Search for Meaning, which uh, by Viktor Frankl, which is a really good perspective when you're dealing with adversity in hard times. And I mean, of course, I'm, I'm obviously going to highly, highly, highly recommend everything that Tanya Blunt has written. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, I mean, they're just, they're so amazing and she just hits it. And I mean, you spoke to her, like I, I could listen to her talk just all day, just like, yes, yes, everything that you just said a thousand times, yes. Um, so highly, highly recommend Tanya's books. And she even has a book for kiddos too. Perfect. Brilliant. All right, well, thank you. So what about a uh, movie? Is, is there a movie that you love? You know, I was I, I knew you were going to ask that, and the first movie that popped into he my head was the movie Parenthood <laughs> from was the 80s with uh, Steve Martin was in it. Um, so it's, you know, it's a family that it's a family, like adult siblings that all parent their children, like completely differently. And all the kids are going through completely different, like nightmarish stuff and just seeing how they all listen to their kids. And, you know, they mess it up a little bit because we're humans and we're all going to, but they all come around and everything kind of ends up being okay. Um, so I think that's a, as, as silly as it sounds like it's a comedy, but it, I think it's life. I think that's pretty, pretty accurate for just having conversations with your kids and listening and getting their interpretation of what they're going through. Cause we need that. We need their interpretation. We need to know what they think things mean. Yeah. Well, that's just, this sparked another question in my head. So we're in an environment now where some parents live vicariously through their kids and they and they set expectations extremely high whether it's through sports through dance singing whatever it is playing the piano um have you and your t your work with children ever seen um the effects of 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 uh expectations of parents affecting their children absolutely i've worked with parents that do that and i've i've worked with that uh, with with adults or with children that have that as well um, from the parent perspective, if a parent is doing that and I get the opportunity to work with that parent, you know, I really get to explore their childhood and it's like, what are, what are you trying to redo here? You know, it's like, we're trying to redo stuff that we didn't get to do in our childhood. You know, we're trying to be like the, the best parent that we can be because maybe our relationship with our parent was lacking in some kind of way. And then we put all these expectations on our kids that they're never going to meet and, and it's just devastating all the way around and no one ends up happy, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I see that leading to a lot with kids. I see that leading to a lot of performance anxiety and a lot of pressure. And it leads to them honestly like not being very honest and open with their parents because they live in such fear of disappointing them. Yeah. And I see the same even with, with academics. Now, of, of course, we need some sort of, you know, scale of, of improvement during academia, but um, you know, th this in the school system, this rewarding of the straight A's and, you know, all that kind of thing. I've talked about this. I forget who it was now. It was someone a couple of weeks ago where you have kids that are probably never going to achieve more than a C in most of their subjects, but it took incredible hard work and grit to get to that point. 
and 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 grading a child purely on an exam, especially the standardized exams that that we have to deal with at the moment, I don't think you know mentally is always the best thing, and actually could even cause you know issues with some of these kids, especially their self esteem. Oh my god, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, just all that pressure that we put on kids, and and the way that we we like rank and categorize their. Uh, success in school, I think is, is really problematic sometimes. I mean, yes, exactly. Like you said, we need to know that they're learning the material and they're doing well, but also like the pressure that's put on them to achieve A's. And I'd be really hard pressed to find any adult job that really cares if you got A's or C's in high school or middle school. Right. Yeah. Um, like what, you know, once you graduate college or high school, even like, does anyone ever ask you what grade you got? Um, but what matters is, do you remember the material? You know, I don't care if you test well or not. Like, do you remember the material? And were you so anxious and under so much pressure from the school or your parents or whomever you were worried about disappointing that you completely bombed? You know, you bombed every test you took. Yeah, I think the the elements like kindness and compassion, you know, I mean, yeah. you may be a straight A student and a complete asshole. Is that a, <laughs> is that a success? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I personally don't think so. Maybe I'm a little biased, but, you know, like, I think some of the, I, some of the smartest, kindest, most amazing people in my life, you know, didn't go to college or maybe didn't excel in school. And, you know, they're, they're wonderful and they're doing great and they're successful and then people who've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their education are complete jerks and they're miserable. So like you said just a moment ago, I think a little kindness and compassion and understanding and just taking moments to like listen and think about what really matters in life is what we're really missing out on here. Yeah. Now you just spawned something else that I meant to ask you earlier. So with the mental health side, obviously the other um, other side of the coin with a lot of this trauma is bullying, you know, and, and I know my little boy's you know, been been a recipient of some, um, and I, and again, there's that side of hurt people, hurt people as well. So, what is your perspective when you were working with the children of of the bullying? I'll use the word epidemic that that we appear to be told at the moment. You know, it just it breaks my heart so much that that it that it happens. You know, like it was obviously prevalent when you and I were both in school. It's always been a thing. Um, but just teaching kids to be kind and compassionate and, you know, it, it goes such a long way. And yeah, like you just said, you know, the, the, I always do kind of want to look twice at the children who are bullies and just what, what in their world makes that okay and makes that an option? What's going on at home with them? Um, so working with the kids who are being bullied, you know, just trying to boost their self-esteem as much as you can and, it's so hard to shield and protect them because the bullying nowadays is not only just happening in person in schools, but now it's happening online across various social media platforms and kids are inventing new, people are inventing new ways every day to communicate with each other over the internet. And with that comes a whole slew of problems. So it's, it's such an overwhelming obstacle and, and challenge really. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, you know, with with the the background of the bullies, I you know my little boy's bully ultimately got transitioned out of the school, and I was actually sad for him because yeah. in my mind, as like, well, what was he experiencing at home? He may have had two amazing human beings as parents, and just you know, been off chemically. Who knows? But there's also a good chance that there was something going on in his home that was making him that way. I know he wasn't just picking on my son he was just lashing out at whoever's around him so that tells me it wasn't you know a vendetta or something like that that it was you know a, a kid that was probably hurting that was look i don't know if he's looking for attention through intimidation or what it was but um yeah i mean i, I again with that mental health side rather than just flinging bullies out of school is there a way that we can kind of get to the root again through therapy to where we take that bully and stop them being a bully that way yeah, I, you know, listening to that, that story that you just told, like, it makes me just like kind of want to like rally around that kid, you know, like as, you know, I don't have children, so I can't say how I would, I well, I know, I know darn well, I would go like full on mama bear and be very protective of the, of my child and, and all that. But there's another part of me that really is wanting to just like rally around that kid 
and just talk to him and let him know like, Hey, I see what you're doing and I don't approve of it and I don't like it, but let's talk. Let's talk about this. What's going on here? You know, maybe, like you said, maybe it is like an organic chemical, you know, maybe this is like a diagnostic issue with this child. Maybe there is something legitimately going on here. And even if that is the case, does that mean they're completely lost? But are we also going to allow them to have completely unsupervised access to be able to continue bullying innocent children? You know, there's, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, but I think it would definitely be like family counseling. I think we would want, I would want to examine the whole dynamic in the family. Like what is going on at home that allows this to happen? Or is there anything, you know, maybe, maybe it is completely organic and a, com- and a completely chemical thing. Maybe there's a lot of issues going on in the home that need to be addressed. I don't, yeah, there's any, av- any number of avenues to go down with that one. Yeah. Well, I think in, we're not having that mental health discussion in the mainstream either and it it really you know i I hate the fact that for example drugs we have a war on drugs no one ever talks about that these are being used as a crutch to to fill a void because of a mental health issue and 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 alcoholism which is the elephant in the room is rampant you know certainly in my profession and because it's legal no one's talking about that either you know so so we have that that issue but then, you know, let's say, for example, politically, not to pick on the president, but the last two people that we had left, neither of those two were preaching kindness. Neither of those two were preaching understanding that maybe we should get to the root of some of these issues. It, it was, you know, incarcerate and punish and all this kind of stuff. So if the very top of the chain is is preaching that stuff, then how are we further down going to persuade people? No, actually, we need to get to the root of this. This is probably a mental health issue and there's trauma attached. So I'm hoping that whoever the hell steps up on in 2020 actually is a humanist again and has the compassion to say, look, we've been doing things wrong. We're, we're locking drug addicts in a prison rather than a rehab facility. You know what I mean? So I think as long as we have that hatred all the way in the very top as these role models then how are we expected to to fix the bullying process when the the left and right candidates that we were left with were both bullies? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, you said that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> it may not agree with fifty percent, depending on who everyone's rah rah for. But you know, I I think that you know I'm I'm more passionate about the country than a human, and I want to fix these issues. And I hate seeing our fellow men and women and and children in pain, and and that takes you know rising above politics. I, I totally agree. Um, I think, you know, the decision I made a long time ago was just like, you know what, I don't, I'm just going to keep doing what I believe is right and what I believe works. And until I'm proven to be crazy or doing something illegal, I'm just going to keep doing that. Because <laughs> I, I think as long as you have, you, if you have good intentions and you have kindness in your heart and you are just wanting to try and, and make people happy and make people healthy, you know, I, I think you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I think that's the thing with, with learning about people like Tanya and yourself is you start realizing there are actually solutions to the problems that we see in the world. So that's what makes it, I think, so frustrating is, you know, you see now, no, this can be reversed. This can be fixed. This can be addressed. But these people need to grab it, you know, grab a bullhorn and start telling the world, no, this is the reason because it's proven. And so many great people agree, but they're not the ones with the giant platforms that can push it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we, we need change is scary. Change is hard. Um, jumping into something unknown is absolutely terrifying. But if we don't do it, no one else is going to. Yeah. Exactly. And what's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> all right. Well, then going back to the closing question. So you mentioned parenthood. Is there a documentary that, that you've been moved by? Uh, oh, gosh, so many. Um, but of course, because I'm the kind of weirdo I am, the majority of documentaries I watch are about serial killers and cults. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I watched a really interesting documentary on Hulu not too long ago for kind of going back to like the kid thing. So I I cannot remember what it was called. I think it was something about strangers or like three strangers or something like that. But it was about these triplets that like these identical triplets that were separated at birth in an orphanage. 
and watching. So it was a beautiful, it was a horrifying experiment that was essentially done by an adoption agency and a, uh, I believe a university psychiatrist of some sort doing research and is a really beautiful, but just devastating and sad example of the effects of biology and nurturing on people. So it's a really great thing of just seeing like all the stuff that these kids hadn't, these adults that they found each other had in common, um, having never met one another and then everything that made them so different and just how like what changes could make their lives go in completely different directions. So I really enjoyed that one. I thought that one was really nice. Brilliant. There was a, a show, I think it started in the seventies or eighties in England. But it's called Seven Up, and they literally followed this. I think I forget how many. I, I don't know if it was seven people because I haven't. It's, it's actually kind of hard to track down now. But they every, is it on BritBox? <laughs> say again. Is it on BritBox? Uh, we just got it probably is. It probably is. That's because it's, it's hard. You can't watch British TV unless you do that. So I actually need to subscribe to that myself. But so every <laughs> seven years, they would do another documentary about the same group, and I think they're up to where they're in their fifties now. Um, yeah. So again, from a, from a psychologist point of view, it's a fascinating social experiment of, of, of these different men and women and, you know, what, what they experienced when they were kids and how that then manifested when they got older. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my colleagues was just telling me about, um, a study that was done in England, uh, following, it was a very long, you know, longitudinal study studying, the psychological effects of people who survived world war II, like living through the bombings and everything. And, um, just kind of what that, what the toll that that took on their lives. So that was just released, I believe last year study on that. Really? I had Sebastian Junger on the show a couple of times. He wrote uh, the book tribe and I guess they were looking at during the bombings, like during the, the blitzes, their their mental health issues actually went down because people had that sense of tribe, that sense of purpose, and it pulled the Londoners together. And they saw the same thing in nine eleven in New York. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it, I mean, it shows you like how resilient humans really are. Just we can we have the potential to be so resilient and just do amazing things. Yeah. Well, again, and then speaking of that, and then we touched on it a little bit earlier, but that tribalism, that sense of being in a group. You know, what What have you seen the importance of that with your children and your first responders that you've come across? Yeah, it, I think it speaks to like uh, going to this like theory of attachment of just having an attachment with something, someone that you draw purpose from, that you get safety and security from. Um, knowing that you're, you have someone or a group of someone's to back you up and to never let you go and never let you down. I think we we really underestimate that value you know, um, the comfort and just peace that we can get knowing that we have a tribe, that we belong somewhere. Exactly. And I think in, in, in a true tribe, everyone, like you said, they belong, they have a place. So they don't abuse the tribe. They don't steal from the tribe. They don't cheat on the tribe, you know, but then they also are rewarded. Like without you, you're the hunter number three, we wouldn't be able to eat, you know? So there's that synchronistic relationship that we just don't seem to have in kind of you know some elements of modern society sure yeah definitely brilliant all right well then uh next question obviously tanya's been on the show um is there anyone else that you would think that you'd recommend as a guest to come on this podcast to speak to the first responders and military of the world you know let's see um i was thinking you know one person that i really wanted to try and uh, touch base with and have a conversation, you know, if you wanted to like continue really like the talk about schools, I would truly, truly recommend my former supervisor, Wanda. Um, she's absolutely amazing, you know, and of course I'll, I can certainly try and connect the two of you, but she's, she's the one who's, you know, school counselor of the year. And, uh, she is such an amazing artist and does art therapy and play therapy. And I think if you wanted to continue down this, this rabbit hole that I can really only scratch the surface of, she'll be the one to burrow all the way down with you. No, that would be amazing. And that's what I love about this project, you know, is it, traditionally we've stayed within the confines of our profession, but you, you know, you start going outside and now you're with all these different professions and these different backgrounds. That's where you see those common denominators that then you can pull back into the people that, that I work alongside. 
Yeah. And you can just see like the, the connections and where, you know, where these connections really are and how valid they are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would love to. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I, this is a really amazing experience and thank you so much for everything that you do. Well, thank you. I got one more, well, two more questions for you. Firstly, what do you do to, to decompress? Oh, um, I try really hard to have like a good, healthy work home balance. So, um, there does come a point in the day where I, I don't, I, you know, put the, the work phone down and, and try not to think about work or emails. Um, once a week, my husband and I like to go do like pub trivia with our friends if we can. Um, which is really, it's like, you can't look at your phone obviously for just like two hours of the week. And it's great. Um, yeah, just kind of like just getting out of the house and trying something new and yeah. So just trying to have like the rich personal life that I, I think it's so important for people to put as much into their personal life as they do into their, their career. Absolutely. Brilliant. All right. So then very last question, if people want to reach out to you, if they've heard something and they want to connect, how can they find you online? Um, they can find me. So, you know, I can be, if it's, you know, work related stuff, they can find me through my um, listed on Tanya's website. So it's tanyaglenn.com. They can find my email and, and hook up with me there. Um, I'm on social media as well. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's not too hard to find anyone these days, I guess. <laughs> what are you on Instagram? I am on Instagram. That's that's where, yeah, I am on Instagram. Is it just Maggie Bradford? Uh, yeah, I, I think so, yes. Okay, brilliant. So I've beefed up security significantly. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much, Maggie. Again, the, the insight of, of doing the child side and then the first responder side is great. Obviously, I'm kind of passionate about the school thing at the moment, trying to bring some change there. So I really appreciate your input. Not a problem. Thank you so much for having me. This was absolutely wonderful.